Whether you are looking for a space to host an intimate gathering or a major celebration, the Westmoreland Museum of American Art offers an artful venue for creating a truly amazing and unforgettable event experience. Don't miss the Bridal and Event Showcase at the museum this Sunday, May 21st from 6 to 9 p.m. Meet a variety of vendors, including florists, caterers, bakeries, jewelers, entertainers, and more. To register for this free event, visit thewestmoreland.org. Astronomy Cast, episode 668, The Crisis in Cosmology. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, the publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, no, no, nothing to report. That, I think, in 2023 is really the best any of us yeah. have ever asked yeah. for. Yeah, the weather is fine. The snow is gone. Uh, I'm getting out and doing a bunch of hikes and, and stuff in the nature, even though it's still kind of, you know, it's wintertime, but still. Uh, garden's coming along. Dang. I saw the comet last night. It sucks, but... Oh. Yeah, it, well. well, it's it's... it's gotten quite diffuse at this point so it's although it's bigger and brighter it's also more of a just a it's cloud. spread out so yeah, the light in yeah. any given places its surface brightness is really low that's right so you really don't get that nice little tight nucleus with the with the tail you just get this what looks like a little cloud in the sky but still it's uh. easy to find like it's it's so easy to find because yeah. it's it was right beside uh Ursa Minor, like right beside the Little Dipper, and then it's moving towards Cassiopeia. So if you have never seen a comet, you can't see it with your eyes, you, but you can see it in a pair of binoculars or a small telescope. It's easy to find, and that's nice, as opposed to one where it's in a, in a fairly difficult constellation to discover. But unfortunately, completely inaccessible now to the folks in the Southern Hemisphere. So this one is just for the folks in the North. So if you haven't already have cloud like the Midwestern folks in the north. Right. Yeah. I mean, it peaks in it's going to peak in like just a couple of days from now. So now is your chance. And then it's just going to get. But it's like it mostly sucks. Like, (laughs) like, like I'm I have I always compare comets to Hale-Bopp and Hakutake. And so and people are even like, oh, like, didn't you like Comet Neowise? I'm like, no. No. No, it sucked. Like I could see it with my eyes. That is that does not a good comet that is you know, that is necessary sufficient but not necessary, necessary anyway, um you know, just barely being able to see a comet with the unaided eye is does not you do not declare victory 
in the comet world. No, you want the one that is gigantic. The, the tail. That's, the tail spans multiple hand spans across the sky that, that you can see it even in light polluted skies. That's a comet. And everything else the universe is sending our way right now is mediocre. And I reject them. So no, Neowise sucked. McNaught sucked. This one sucks. We demand better. I will wait, but I but I've been patient for too long. Come on, Comet. I I can't argue with that. All of that is true. <laughs> well, it's yeah, all true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to just like for people to go like, oh yeah, Comet Neowise was fine. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And you're settling. You deserve better. I deserve better. We deserve better comets. The universe can provide it. It's done it in the past. It's time to put up or shut up. All right. Yeah. Astronomers have made extremely accurate measurements of the expansion rate of the universe and come up with different results. And the error bars to the observations don't overlap. So there's something strange going on. What's the answer? And how can the crisis in cosmology be resolved? The crisis of cosmology. So what is the crisis in cosmology? So, so some people call it the crisis. Some people call it the Hubble tension. A lot of us just put WTF with an exclamation mark and call it a day. So, so what's happening is before the, the supernova teams did such an amazing job of, of measuring the present expansion rate, of, of the universe, we were like, nah, the universe is expanding somewhere between 50 kilometers per second per megaparsec and 100 kilometers per second right. per megaparsec. And I had so many profs that were like, just use 100. It makes the numbers easier. Right. It nice. was pleasing. Right. And so, so just, just so people understand this idea that you take a megaparsec of space which is about 33 million light years of space. And when you think about that, that is like the distance between us and faraway galaxies. Like Andromeda is very close. We're talking about galaxies mm-hmm. that are 30 million light years away. Like M87 is kind of in that. When you think about that, the supernova image, every second that goes by, those objects are now 100 kilometers farther apart. Or 50 kilometers farther apart. And it is a function of how far something is away from you. So the further something is away, the faster it appears to be moving away from you. A lot of people use a raisin bread analogy on this because the raisins stay the same size as the bread dough expands. So two raisins that start really close together will end up a little further apart. Two raisins that are really far apart initially will end up seriously far apart by the time that bread is done rising. And why is knowing the expansion rate of the universe important? It, it's one of those things that allows us to put together all the rest of our cosmological ideas of how you go from our, our universe being a, a single point to expanding out to forming hydrogen, helium, trace amounts of lithium, beryllium, to it's just it, the whole story is tied up and and it it slowed down or it sped up and understanding what rate we're going now since there's no accelerator pedal that we know about um 
what we see has to be defined by the physics of our universe, and we can start to define all that physics of the universe if we know this one number that refuses to be measured. I have to, I have to apologize. I was off by a factor of 10 there, so sorry, and you should have caught me. It's surprising you didn't, but a, a megaparsec is 3.3 million light years, not 33. So, yeah. so Andromeda roughly is in that, is in that ballpark range. So apologies. Yes. The way I think about it is someone in Andromeda looking back at us would be seeing Neanderthals. Right. But the, but, but astronomers don't think in light years, they think in megaparsecs. And so if I get off by a factor of 10, that's fine by you because you don't even think about it. So apologies. And yeah, the, the general public thinks in light years while astronomers only think in parsecs and megaparsecs, but, but yeah, so, so, so apologize. Uh, let's continue. Um, so, so why, so why you were discussing why knowing the expansion rate of the universe is important. It, it basically just gives us this reference point that we can work all the other maths back from. So, like, like how long the universe has been around for? How long the universe has been around for? Uh, basically, what will happen in the future? How? How? The the one that gets me is by understanding uh, the current expansion rate, we can actually figure how fast the universe went from being a mostly smooth distribution of of gases to forming galaxies to forming galaxy clusters the the rate at which we formed large scale structure at a certain level hinges on how fast our universe is expanding right right it, it's everything um, and so in the olden days we used to get you know, how old is the universe? And people would say, well, it's kind of somewhere between 10 and 20 billion years old. And that's that range of measurements. The, if you get 50 megaparsecs, sort of 50 megaparsecs, no, wait, 50 kilometers per second per megaparsec, you get one age of the universe because mm-hmm. you just measure how long the universe is expanding. But if you get 100, then you get a different one. And they are very different. And knowing that is is important. So how do astronomers measure the expansion rate of the universe? There, at the close and at the far. So there are, there are two totally different suites of mechanisms. The, the local time way of doing it is uh, we look for supernovae, which give off a set amount of light if they're type 1a supernova, explode a white dwarf star, and you get essentially the same explosion over and over and over again with errors that we've discussed in other episodes. Measure how bright that explosion appears. Measure how fast the galaxy the supernova is in uh, is moving. And this tells you the distance using measured brightness and known luminosity, and it tells you the expansion rate by looking at the Doppler shifting. So uh, we're literally measuring how much the colors of the different bands of atomic lines have been shifted by the galaxy's motion. And that gets us a velocity. And so we have all of these standard candles mm-hmm. from the Cepheid variables to the supernova to there's a, like, I saw a list. There must have been 30 potential oh, yeah. standard candles overlapping, yeah. going from some, some of which are very well known, others of which are, are poorly known. But you go from 
local measurements using parallax that overlaps with Cepheid variables, that overlaps with with type 1a supernova, and you just get this really beautiful, smooth measurement. And what number did we get from the local methods of measuring the expansion rate of the universe? So we're getting around 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And this right. is using not just supernovae, but as you point out, there's a bunch of other methods. So folks are looking at red giants, they're looking at planetary nebulae, they are looking even at the, the uh, distant gravitationally lensed galaxies that we're able to see multiple versions of using crazy geometry when we can see the the galaxies lenses do different things do the same thing at different times all these methods are giving us definitely over 70 and narrowing in on 74 so it seems pretty constant And the air bars are, are really tightening up. I mean, the the quality of the observations is exquisite. I mean, I know you talk to I talk to a lot of astronomers, and they talk about how good of a job yeah. they've done with those observations, and they just gush. The, right. The shoes survey by Adam Reese, they're quoting a error of one point three percent, and they are basically going from the nearby Cepheids that they have taken some of the most precise photometry of that anyone has ever taken, then using Gaia uh, parallax data, and then working all the way out. And, and how often does anything in astronomy get done with that level of accuracy? We mm-hmm. know this. It's the local value is basically 74 megaparsecs right. per se- uh, kilometers per second per megaparsec. And so let's go the other end of the range because there is another yeah. group of measurements that are taken not locally. Right. And and this is where things are, are squirrely. In the cosmic microwave background, we see these baryonic oscillations, these sound waves that moved through the, the early universe causing slight over and under densities. And, and we can map so beautifully this distribution with our theoretical models and by combining our, our understanding of, okay, so the universe had this much regular matter, this much dark matter, this much putting all of these base understandings that we come at from theory, combining our, our average temperature information that we got from Kobe and other, other missions, putting it all together, it gets us in the 60s, 68 mm. generally. But, but the most accurate version of this was the Planck satellite from the European Space Agency. Right. And, and this is where it's important to notice. The, note, the Planck data was used to get at, at that distribution of baryonic uh, oscillations. And that was used in combination with a mean temperature that they were, in a lot of the papers, referring back to Kobe data. So... Planck got us very specifically deviations about the mean. Um, And we just fit all the data together in the context of what's called lambda cold dark matter. 
This is a theoretical framework that says that our universe is not just expanding, but it's accelerating as it expands. That mm-hmm. the dark matter, the stuff that we're not really sure what is, that may be related to neutrinos in some way, whatever it is, it wasn't moving extremely fast early in the universe. So that's where the cold part comes in. So we have lambda, the dark energy, and cold dark matter, two things we have very poor understanding of. Um, When you combine those with the data, it gets you, again, roughly 68 kilometers per second per megaparsec with error bars that don't overlap. Right, and this is the key. So so you look at the local neighborhood and you get a measurement that's in the low 70s with very tight error bars. You look at the early universe, you get 68 with very tight error bars. Both are exquisite observations. Both are trying to tell you the same thing and they disagree with one another. And this at the heart is the crisis in cosmology. So this is the heart of the crisis in cosmology. So what's the answer? Well, this is where I personally am a bit excited, and I don't know how many people are with me on this one because I wasn't at the meeting, but at the American Astronomical Society meeting, there was a lot of discussion about how JWST images of gravitationally lensed early galaxies appear to be showing from two different studies that have both made it through peer review that there were already well-formed galaxies uh, 350 million years after the Big Bang. And and that's early. Mm-hmm. There is other work that is being done that is still going through peer review that is showing there may have already been galaxies massive ones at 200 million years after the Big Bang. So with galaxies forming this early in the history of the universe, it it tells us that that model we have, lambda cold dark matter, is off somewhere. Because mm-hmm. while we thought there would be a couple, a few massive galaxies early on, those baryonic oscillations didn't lead us to believe there would be as many as we are now finding. And so we have to figure out a new way to get from mostly smooth universe with the cosmic microwave background to galaxies forming in bigger and probably larger numbers than we anticipated to our present structure and, and folks are putting out ideas like maybe there was a bit of leftover inflation. Maybe the value of dark energy hasn't been constant. And, and all of these different ideas, I don't think we can really throw anything out yet. And I mm-hmm. am the first person to want to throw out ideas. Right. So, so, this, so the challenge here is that you've got, like, maybe the like the the most obvious possibility is that one or both measurements is incorrect. Yes. Which is what would be everybody's first instinct. Yes. That someone's wrong. Yes. That that one of these measurements is incorrect. But both 
because of this dichotomy, both measurements have been scrutinized and scrutinized and teams have gone back and all they're doing is narrowing the arrow bars. They're not the error bars. They're not, they're not finding a large discrepancy. So, so that's the, that's the one that is most likely. And yet that seems to be less and less of the case. And so you're left with like new the physics. universe, new physics, right. That, that our understanding of Einstein, like, like our understanding of what those acoustic oscillations should be in the cosmic microwave background is wrong. And, and this is where it, I'm not going to lay blame on anybody. I Relativity seems to work so far. It doesn't seem to be the mm-hmm. problem. Um, but but our, our understanding of the distribution of kinds of matter, the way different forces interplayed... Whatever the heck inflation might be, we have no idea what inflation might be. It it is somewhere in this physics of how we get from the Big Bang to now that that we are missing something. And it's kind of awesome. We, we, We don't get a whole lot of surprises anymore it feels like yeah. some days we we found all the particles in the standard model we didn't find any of the particles from supersymmetry this gives us something new to chase and and the fact that even the folks using gravitational waves to measure distances they're still getting the same local universe numbers mm. and and that's harder to get wrong yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know I've talked to some people working in gravitational wave observatories and I've had this conversation and they, and effectively, the more precise, the more powerful these gravitational wave observatories get, the farther they're able to see out into the universe, yeah. you can rely on their measurements. So it's another layer of, of observation, but one that's very trustworthy and it only goes so far. Like it doesn't take you all the way out to the end of the universe, but maybe some future observation will. So then like new physics. So, so maybe we don't understand how the early cosmic microwave background worked. Maybe we don't understand how Cepheid variables work. Maybe we don't understand like all these different pieces. There's been a few hints, right? Like maybe we don't understand, maybe type one, a supernovae aren't the standard candles that we thought they were. And, and this is where there are so many different things that are getting us that local 73-ish that, yeah, I, I'm happy saying there are discrepancies from one type 1A supernova to another in weirdo special cases. We, we've got to talk about some of those. If the white dwarf ends up inside of another star, that explosion is going to be a little bit different. And right. that happens. But... But it really seems like there is something about how you get from there, cosmic microwave background, to here, gravitational waves, cepheids, planetary nebulae, supernovae, all these other mechanisms. There, there's something in the science that we have yet to uncover. And then another possibility is if the rate of expansion of the universe changed so perhaps there was a like the model that I've heard is this idea of late inflation. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I was looking at as well. Where, where yeah. whatever it was that caused us to initially blow up, 
there's a little bit of that left over that caused a, another kick, but it, we don't understand what's going on right, there. Right, right. And so if you had an expansion rate of 74 yeah. early on, or sorry, 68 early on, and then it slowed down, you could get the one that's today. And that's even taking into account dark energy. Like I'm sure people are like, what about dark energy? And like, that's layered on, on top of this. Yeah. Like that's accounted for. And so you would have this almost like instead of the universe smoothly applying the accelerator on the gas, he was like putting the accelerator on a little harder and then pulling the foot off the pedal a little bit and yeah. then putting it on harder again. And who knows what kind of shenanigans it got up to in the intervening period. So what is the, way forward at this point? What is the way out of the crisis in cosmology? We need to basically do a survey of just what was the distribution of galaxies and galaxy clusters in the early universe. We, we, we have done a beautiful job first with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey doing a volume around our galaxy. Then with the Dark Energy Survey, we have pushed out even farther in some areas of the sky. With JWST, we're going to be able to continue pushing the survey of structure size further and further out, watching how the universe goes from being Swiss cheese with giant holes in it to being Swiss cheese with smaller and smaller holes in it. Right. And by measuring how that large-scale structure changes over time, that will start to put a different form of constraint on our models. We need to be out there counting early galaxies. Right, and so you've got this structure of the cosmic microwave background radiation, and the hot spots and cold spots should map mm-hmm. to equivalent cl- clusters and distributions of galaxies. And so you'll know that this transition from the farthest that you can see to more recent is smooth. Yes, and then and and that will tell you, and then you can keep moving forward at that at that point. And but that's a much harder observation. Like weird as it sounds, the galaxies are are much dimmer and harder to spot and map out than the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is everywhere in all directions. Yeah, yeah. more telescopes. And I guess the other side of that, yeah. And then the other side of that is going farther with gravitational waves, and hopefully you'll get to this point where the two overlap, where where the gravitational waves reach the cosmic microwave background or shortly after. That, that is technology that someone maybe someday will fund, and we're at that frustrating point where the next big discovery beyond what we can do with the new massive radio telescopes that have started to catch star formation at earlier periods and what we can do with JWST it's it's going to take multiple nations getting together to build these 30, 80, however many meter telescopes that are being discussed to be able to look back. All right, place your bets. It's the close observations are wrong, the CMB concert observations are wrong, or there's new physics. New physics. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's the most exciting outcome, possibility, yeah. is new physics. And so if that's true, that would be wonderful. Or, or at least a new understanding of that yeah. cold, dark matter temperature. It would be a huge thing. Like yeah. there is a revision to relativity that nobody saw coming. 
or so so again i i i'm not sure saying a a revision to relativity is the right way to say it because i i think that what we're looking at is something coming out of the realm of particle physics and particle physics and relativity do not talk to one another and and i really think it's going to be something about how particles interact in different regimes and and whatever the heck this dark energy is that's going to be what gets us to the solution to this discrepancy and i mean i think this you know this crisis makes it sound like a bad thing but you talk to astronomers and they couldn't be more excited like yeah, they're so yeah. happy to misunder to not understand something that that what was considered to be this bedrock idea because the problem with bedrock is you get this ossification mm-hmm. suddenly you have this space that is opened up where the solution is in there somewhere and a lot of interesting ideas and theories and a lot of brainstorming and a lot of just intellectual power gets to be put onto this problem and they love it. They love it. So I, I, I feel sad that the, the, the term crisis, cause you get a lot of pseudoscientists sort of rolling their yeah. eyes at scientists. I like at the this Hubble thing. tension. The Hubble tension. Yeah. yeah but this, the crisis in cosmology is a, is a better name. So I'd rather, <laughs> you know, I'd rather reel them in with the crisis in cosmology and then help people understand it. In fact, astronomers are, are, they couldn't be more excited and, and happy to have this opportunity. So, all right, Pamela, thank you so much. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you to everyone out there who makes this show possible through your patronage at patreon.com slash astronomycast. This week, I would like to thank Cami Racian, Gabriel Galfin, Benjamin Davies, Stephen Coifey, uh, John Usaf, Arctic Fox, Dean, Corinne Dubtruck, Bart Flaherty, The Lonely Sand Person, John Drake, Nate Detweiler, Lou Zealand, Brian Kelby, uh, Nyla, The Air Major, Ron Thorson, Arthur Latz Hall, Lee Harborn, Jason uh, Cardokas, uh, Robert Heddle, Hundle, uh, Kim Barron, Paul Esposito, Ruben McCarthy, Bob Zatsky, Jordan Turner, Time Lord Iroh, Daniel Donaldson, Frank Stewart, Ian Abdella, and Jeff McDonald. Thank you all so much for making everything we do possible. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Astronomy Cast is a joint product of Universe Today and the Planetary Science Institute. Astronomy Cast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. So love it, share it, and remix it. But please credit it to our hosts, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can get more information on today's show topic on our website, astronomycast.com. This episode was brought to you thanks to our generous patrons on Patreon. If you want to help keep this show going, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash astronomycast. Not only do you help us pay our producers a fair wage, you will also get special access to content right in your inbox and invites to online events. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined our Patreon community already. Anyways, keep looking up. This has been Astronomy Cast. <laughs>